Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Have you ever found yourself feeling uncertain or confused when trying to choose a patient reported outcome measure or PROM to use with a patient? There are so many different tools and approaches out there that it can sometimes feel like you're spoilt for choice, or perhaps like there's simply nothing available, or at least nothing that makes sense. Today, physical therapist, educator and researcher Professor Lisa Hoagland joins me from Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia to fill in the gaps and help us find the promise in PROMS. Dr. Lisa Hoagland, welcome to JOSPT Insights. Thank you very much, Claire. I really appreciate you inviting me to be on the podcast. I'm so glad you accepted this invitation because today we're talking about measuring and I think we get that it's all important to measure stuff in the clinic and before our listeners tune out and think, oh, hey, I don't need to listen to this stuff about measuring, I want to say to everybody, please stick around because we're going to break down some of those weird terms that you might read about in research, things like validity and reliability. We're going to talk about different types of tools and look at why we want to take measuring things seriously as clinicians and what all of the stuff that you read in research means for your clinical practice. It's a very clinically relevant and oriented podcast today, as always on JOSPT Insights. Now, Lisa, the first thing that I would like to know from you is why bother with patient reported outcome measures? And we are going to focus on patient reported outcome measures today. So why bother with them? What sorts of things do PROMs capture that we can't get from other parts of our clinical assessment? I think one of the most important things is that we want to realize that we are trying to have patient-centered care and patient-reported outcome measures really give us information on the status of our patient's health directly from the patient themselves. So we are not interpreting it. We are really using these different specific measurement instruments to help us capture the status of their health, and the impact of whatever their condition is upon their function and their health. I love that you go to the the patient's voice, the patient's experience, because as you say, that's what we're trying to bring into, into clinical practice. Lisa, why is it not a good idea to simply take any old tool or question off the shelf and ask the patient or the person in front of you to answer? So the reason that that is not a good practice is because Some of these different measurement tools may not have sufficient measurement properties. And one of the measurement properties that I'm thinking of that's really important is content validity. Content validity is something that tells us that the measurement tool that we're using and the information that we get from it is really a reflection of the construct that we're trying to measure. I love that, Lisa. So what are the hallmarks of a good, the other hallmarks of a good patient reported outcome or PROM? You mentioned content validity, which is really this idea of, is it measuring stuff that matters to patients? And we all hear that from patients that this questionnaire doesn't really get at the things that matter to my life or matter to me. What other things do we need to look for in a tool aside from the things that matter to patients? So in addition to content validity, we really want to think also about reliability. And when we're thinking about patient-reported outcome measures, which are are typically questionnaires, there we think about test-retest reliability. We also want to know if 
the measure is responsive to change. When we're using these patient reported outcome measures, we're typically not administering them just one time. We're usually doing them, uh, giving them to a patient to fill out at the beginning of that patient's plan of care. And then we're, we're following them up several weeks later or perhaps months, but typically weeks later. And we want to be sure that that outcome measure is responsive to change, meaning if the patient has changed in some fashion, and hopefully it's an improvement, will we really be able to, to capture that? Will we be able to detect that change? There are a couple of other properties that I think are really important for us as clinicians that are not technically considered measurement properties. And those are interpretability, which is really how we assign a qualitative property to a quantitative measure. Clinicians are probably familiar with the minimum clinically important difference. And the second property that I think is very important that's not technically a measurement property is feasibility. So those are factors related to how long is a patient-reported outcome measure? How long does it take the patient to complete it? How easy is it for the clinician to score it? And those are really important to clinicians because we're busy. So it sounds like what I'm looking for in a in a patient-reported outcome or probably in any kind of measurement tool that I'm using is something that measures the things that matters matter to patients, something that I can confidently test and test again and know that I'm measuring something that's truly changed and then also a meaningful change. So it's going to pick up when there's a change that means something to the patient's progress. And then also, is it something that I can fit into my day-to-day clinical practice with the patient population that I work with? I think you summarized it perfectly. Thank you for that summary, Claire. Let's dive into patellofemoral pain, because that's really your special subject or one of your special subjects, Lisa. And I want to take what we've learned about the general, the basics of um, measurement properties and apply them specifically to patellofemoral pain. And and this is a really important area because I'm going to take a wild guess that a lot of people listening to us today will have seen people with patellofemoral pain. This is quite a common thing that we see in the clinic. What is it that, in your experience, people with patellofemoral pain really typically care about? What are the things that I need to make sure that a patient-reported outcome measure for patellofemoral pain measures? The patients that I've interacted with with patellofemoral pain really want to maintain their physical activity. Most of these individuals are active in some way. The patellofemoral compartment of the knee or the patellofemoral joint, as we often call it, is one that is involved in so many of our daily activities, not just running and jumping and those kinds of things, but even things as basic to our activities of daily living as going up and down stairs or standing up from a chair. Or when we get older, many people develop osteoarthritis of that part of their knee patellofemoral osteoarthritis, we're starting to learn how prevalent that is too. You've given us lots of really good examples there of the types of functions and and daily living activities that people with patellofemoral pain might find important. Let's build on that. Tell me, Lisa, what are the, the patient, what's the patient reported outcome, the single patient reported outcome, or maybe the suite of patient reported outcomes that you would recommend folks listening to us today consider when they're working with someone who has patellofemoral pain? 
Well, because patellofemoral pain is a painful condition, uh, it is recommended to use some rating of pain severity level. It could be as simple as a numeric pain rating scale. You could also use a visual analog scale. In my experience, anyway, the numeric pain rating scale is a little bit more frequently used in the clinic. We should be using one of those measures, uh, and that'll tell us something about the severity of the pain. We also want to know what impact that pain has on the patient's function. And so that's where uh, myself and some of my colleagues, we really look closely at many of the patient-reported outcome measures measuring function, physical function, of patients who have patellofemoral pain. From our systematic review, we really found that the outcome measure that had the best all-around properties in all areas, content validity, reliability, responsiveness, et cetera, was one that's relatively recent. It's called the COOS-PF, and that stands for the Knee Injury and Osteoarthritis Outcome Score. That's what COOS stands for. And it's a patellofemoral subscale. Just published its development study in 2018 by Kay Crossley and, and some of the members of her research group. So that is the patient-reported outcome measure that we recommended first. Now, that is what is called a condition-specific patient-reported outcome measure, meaning that if you know that your patient has patellofemoral pain, you can use this particular patient-reported outcome measure because they have that particular condition. We also found a second outcome measure for measuring function to be useful for people when they don't necessarily know that the patient has patellofemoral pain. They do know that the patient has lower extremity pain. And so kind of the, the uh, second best, if you will, outcome measure that we found from our systematic review was the lower extremity functional scale, which is one that I'm sure most of the listeners will be familiar with. It's been around for a long, long time. It has been examined in patients who have patellofemoral pain, but it is not quite so specific. So the content validity is not quite as, as good as, as the, the COOS-PF. And I think many of the folks listening will have used the COOS or at least will know of the COOS with regard to measuring patient-reported outcomes in knee osteoarthritis generally. So it's really nice to have that extension that builds on the specific complaints or the specific concerns of people with patellofemoral pain to know that you can lean on that. Now, Lisa, let's talk a little bit about the COOS-PF. Tell me, what's the structure of it? How would one go about administering it? How, how am I going to use that in the clinic? How is it helpful for me in the clinic? Well, Claire, the COOS-PF is uh, a questionnaire that specifically asks questions of an individual related to their, uh, their knee joint. And they are ones that were selected to be important to patients who have patellofemoral pain, and it could potentially be patellofemoral osteoarthritis. It is uh, typically a paper version. There are 11 questions. It's been estimated to take only about five minutes. So as far as feasibility, this was one of, one of the best outcome measures that we, that we looked at. And of these 11 items, they're all rated on a five-point Likert scale questions asking the individual about how severe their knee pain is and whether or not it makes them stop performing activity. And there are also different questions asking how much 
pain and difficulty they've had doing different tasks that have been reported to be challenging for people with patellofemoral pain, such as running, rising from sitting, squatting. And one of the other nice parts of the COOS-PF is that there is a question that asks individuals about their quality of life. As you probably know, measuring people's quality of life is becoming more and more important to us. So it's really a nice 11-point measure that's quick to administer, easy to to score, and uh, really gives us a lot of great information specific to patients who have patellofemoral pain or patellofemoral osteoarthritis. It's a really good one to have in our toolkit as clinicians. Now, Lisa, you mentioned when we were talking about patellofemoral pain earlier, you mentioned that there are many different clinical populations. We think of we might think of the athlete with patellofemoral pain There are certainly other groups of people who suffer many years with patellofemoral pain. Is the COOS-PF something that is appropriate for anyone or do I need to really think carefully about the patient population with whom I'm working and and then choose a different tool? You know, that's a good question too, Claire, because uh, one of the things that I think people need to understand is when an outcome measure has been validated, it's been really validated for a particular population and for a particular use. So uh, these patient reported outcome measures about function, uh, specifically we're talking today about patients who have patellofemoral pain, have really been validated for their use to measure and evaluate function in patients who have patellofemoral pain. Specifically the COOS-PF, when it was developed, they actually very nicely surveyed patients who had patellofemoral pain and and likely were younger, but also some older individuals who had patellofemoral osteoarthritis. So when they were developing this subscale, they were really trying to make it applicable to patients kind of across the spectrum of age. And, you know, clearly maybe some questions might not be quite as appropriate for uh, someone, perhaps if they're older and they haven't run for a very long time, they did try to create a nice spectrum of questions. That's really helpful. And Lisa, when you're teaching and when when you've been working in the clinic with with patients, how do you approach using these different tools? Because there are so many different tools to choose from and, and they're each measuring different things. You talked about knee-specific measures, there are generic measures. I could end up measuring five different questionnaires or using five different questionnaires. How do you balance that, wanting to capture all of this information, the feasibility of doing this in clinical practice and having the patient take the time to fill out this information and what's going to make most difference to the decisions that you make as a clinician in practice tomorrow? You know, that is true. We don't don't have unlimited time with our patients, right? And patients do also have a lot of paperwork typically to fill out on their first visit. And also when we start with a patient and, and performing our evaluation, we don't necessarily know that the patient has patellofemoral pain. Patellofemoral pain is considered a diagnosis of exclusion. So we do need to, you know, make note of the the location of their symptoms. It should be retropatellar or peripatellar and um, be something that's typically provoked by squatting and some of those kinds of activities. But we we need to rule out any other possible condition that might be a cause of our patient's pain. That could include 
cancer or a fracture or something of that nature, patellar tendinopathy. We need to rule that out as well. So typically I would start with the lower extremity functional scale. That one is a region specific outcome measure. It could be applicable to patients who have musculoskeletal conditions of any joint of the lower extremity. And we also want to think about regional interdependence. So sometimes patients come in and they have knee pain, but maybe it's stemming from their hip. So I would start with the lower extremity functional scale, but I might follow that up then with giving them the CUS PF. I could potentially give it to them to fill out at home if, you know, if it had been a long time, they could finish it at fill it out after my appointment. I could give it to them on visit two, but uh, we really do feel like the CUS PF being condition specific to patellofemoral pain be more helpful in coming up with some patient goals and things of that nature. We love on JOSPT Insights, as you know, to have those concrete recommendations for what I can take to the clinic tomorrow. Lisa, the other thing I'm wondering about is with all of these patient reported outcomes, is it a pen and paper? I add up the score on my piece of paper in the clinic, or are there some platforms where I can enter the scores in online and generate a, a, a score for patients? How are these being used? So there are some different websites to, to fill things in. And, and I'm sure that some clinics are probably using mobile devices to have their patients complete some of these outcome measures that way. Where I was working, it was still pen and paper. With the COOS PF, as with all of the subscales of the COOS, there is a really nice spreadsheet, essentially, that, that a person can download from the COOS website then fill in the, the patient's scores on that spreadsheet. And then it actually calculates a percentage. It converts the, uh, the patient's score to a, with 100% being the highest score. Lisa, that's great. It takes me to my next question, which is around how do I interpret the information that comes back from the questionnaire? And I think often people are looking for things like normative data, normative values. What's out there to help us interpret the results of the COOS-PF, the lower extremity functional scale, and other tools that people might choose to use in clinic? The first thing that I think, Claire, that's important is when we're really practicing patient-centered care, we do want to remember that Probably the best thing is to think about the patient's score. And then when we do that reevaluation, to see how that has changed. And, you know, hopefully there's been a change for the better. So, one of the best things that we can use is if we have done that and performed a reevaluation, is to see if there's a, a value for the minimum clinically important difference or the minimum clinically important change. And that's one of the things, one of the things that was better with the COOS-PF than the LEFS was that for the COOS-PF, we actually do have a value for the minimum clinically important difference. So I can use that difference, number one, to see if my patient really has made a significant change and hopefully it's a significant improvement. I can also use that, that minimum clinically important difference when I'm trying to create some measurable goals. So, you know, that MCID is something that we want to make sure that the patient has achieved at least that amount of change in, or, in order for it to really be not only statistically important, but clinically relevant. So the, the lower extremity functional scale, we don't have at least for patellofemoral pain. 
we don't have a, a minimum clinically important difference, but we do have a minimum detectable change, which is really a statistical difference. And we can use that value when we don't have an MCID, but it's not quite as good for our using with our patients. Now, Lisa, you've left me on tenderhooks. What is the minimal clinically important difference for the COOS PF? And then we'll come back to the lower extremity functional scale. Claire, well, the minimum clinically important difference for the COOS PF, we actually have a little bit of a range based upon the studies that have been done. It's 14.2 to 17.2 points. So if you use the upper range, you would want to make sure that your patient changed at least approximately 17 points on that COOS-PF, and that is out of a score of 100. I think that's a good thing to point out, Lisa, that the 17 points is the most conservative number. So if someone's changed by more than 17 points, you're probably most confident that that what you're seeing is a true change. And I guess the other thing to point out whenever we talk about minimal clinically important difference is that it's it's always relative to the population that you're working with and the population for whom that minimal clinically important difference was calculated. So that's always something to have in the back of your mind as a clinician, I think. And the lower extremity functional scale, Lisa, what are we looking at there? So for the lower extremity functional scale, as I mentioned, we don't have a minimum clinically important difference. But what we do have is the minimal detectable change. And that would be a score of nine points. And the lower extremity functional scale is measured out of 80. So that's nine points of change out of 80. And that's the best measure that we have right now to help us when we're setting measurable goals. That's fantastic. Thanks, Lisa. Now, all of what we've been talking about today, it's been such a great learning podcast for me about all of the terrific patient reported outcome measures for not only patellofemoral pain, but how to think about measuring patient reported outcome measures. For folks who would like to learn more about all of your work and all of the work that's gone into what we've talked about today, I will direct them to the links in the show notes to two of your excellent systematic reviews that we've recently published in JOSPT. And Lisa, I know you were heavily involved in the patellofemoral pain clinical practice guidelines. So I'll give you the last word on where you would direct people aside from the resources that we're going to link to in the podcast show notes. Well, Claire, I do think that that patellofemoral pain clinical practice guideline, I definitely direct people to that. In that, that document, we really published results of the systematic reviews that we did related to the interventions that are shown to be effective for patients with patellofemoral pain. We also go over correct diagnosis of patellofemoral pain and different things that we need to be looking at to be sure that there isn't some other serious medical condition present, physical performance outcome measures that can be used with patients who have patellofemoral pain. And it's just really a wealth of information in that document. It absolutely is. And I'm so grateful for you sharing it with us today and also sharing the results of your systematic reviews, Lisa, and your wealth of experience from clinical practice and academia research and teaching. Thanks for joining me on JOSPT Insights. And thanks for having me again, Claire. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. 
For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to GOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time. Listener.